Welcome to the Research Business Daily Report. Now, scratch that. <laughs> scratch that. This is the Rock and Roll Research Podcast where we share stories of the past lives and side gigs of the insights pros that you've come to trust. I'm Matt Valley, and today's guest, if you're in the research or insights industry, should be no stranger to you. Bob Letterer has been an institution in this industry as publisher of the Research Business Report, and in recent years, the Research Business Daily Report. And I personally have been consuming his content pretty much since I started in this industry. And I'm really thankful because he's led some really important discussions in the industry as well around research quality and other topics that uh, have made our work better. And Bob is always on the other side of the mic. And so I'm delighted to turn the tables and share something you probably don't know about Bob. So welcome to the podcast, Bob. Hey, Mac. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, you've got your Minnesota Vikings attire on. Are you, represent. In, are you in Minneapolis or where are you these days? The last time I knew you were in Chicago. I'm in Dallas now. I've moved around quite a bit, but uh, you know, I'm saddled uh, for a lifetime with being a miserable Vikings fan. So <laughs> what can I say? Well, okay, I, I had to come appropriately attired once I knew what you were doing. And for those of you who don't know, there's really only one number 12 in pro football history, and that's Joe Willie Namath. So anyway, Broadway I don't Joe. even like that. I don't even like the guy. <laughs> Broadway Joe. Well, you, you've tipped your hat a little bit to this cool uh, story that you have to tell, but uh, we'll, we'll hold that for a second. Um, so I'm really interested to know how you first got into this crazy space of insights to begin with. Well, um, I'm going to tell a story that only a handful of people actually know. All right. You get the scoop. I get the scoop. Awesome. 25 years ago, it is the summer of 1994. And um, a friend of mine who had worked for me as a managing director, a managing editor of a trade publication that we both were working on, I was the editor, came to Chicago and joined the Nielsen organization as the VP of communications. Okay. And he found out that I had just moved to Chicago myself several years before, invited me to lunch and told me this story about how Larry Gold and Jack Honemichael at Inside Research, we yeah. all remember Inside Research. Absolutely. Had come and done an interview with the, um, the CEO and the president of Nielsen North America in their offices in Schaumburg, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And Larry and Jack, for whatever reason, decided not to write anything up after 90 minutes of this, this CEO's time. Um, they didn't know nothing was going to come. come at, um, Nielsen didn't know nothing was going to come of it. Mm -hmm. Several months later, uh, my friend uh, called Larry and Jack and said, where's the interview that you guys did? And they, they, he was told, uh, uh, the CEO didn't tell us anything interesting, so we decided not to write anything. Wow. <laughs> um, the CEO was incensed mm -hmm. and he told my friend what we need some options in the industry 
as to what we can do uh, when we have important information to get out because we know these guys are not reliable. Um, and my friend takes me to lunch, tells me that story, and I looked at him and I remember saying to him, why would you kick the, uh, the, the industry's big gorilla in a sensitive area like that? Why would you do that? That's really stupid. Right. And um, my friend said, well, listen, I've given my boss recommendations and he's bought into one. We want somebody to start a competitive market research publication in the industry. Will you do that? And I went, why would I want to do that? And he said to me, because we'll help you get on your feet and then you're on your own. And so Nielsen gave me a modicum of support for a couple of years, um, uh, pointed me in all kinds of directions to people about the industry so I could learn on the job what it was really all about. And this was like July or August of 1994. And by September, October, I had uh, officially started the business with the state of Illinois, and we put out our first issue in January of 1995. And that is how I got into the market research industry. And wow. it, has been, it has been a wonderful experience for me, and I hope for the people that have been reading uh, my material and listening to me spout off now for <laughs> Well, it has been for me, and I had no idea there was such intrigue behind that story. No, so well, few people have asked. <laughs> and frankly, in the early you know, in the early years, I wouldn't have told anybody, frankly, because um, it didn't serve my purpose, obviously, for people to know mm-hmm. that Nielsen was, was helping, helping to get me started. Sure. And in fact, I made it clear to my friend, listen, uh, A, this can never get out, and B, um, you guys can't own me. You can't tell me what to write or when to write it. And my friend said to me, all we ask of you is that when we have a story that we think is important, that you'll give us the time and listen to us and let us try to sell you on its value to the industry. And my attitude was that the 800-pound gorilla wants to tell the industry something. Who am I to say no? And my attitude, it remains to that you know, to that today. Also, Nielsen doesn't really have anything to do with this today. I don't know why, but I can't give them, uh, they they won't give me five minutes of their time for whatever reason. So changing times. Wow. Wow. Interesting. And And now you know the rest of this. And you you heard it here first on the Rock and Roll Research Podcast. What do you know? (laughs) So um, Joe Namath, Broadway Joe, J-E-T-S, Jets, 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 Jets. So you've got a story to tell about that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I grew up in New York City and uh, in the 60s. And I became um, a Mets fan in 1963, year after they started. Like mm-hmm. I now have a, uh, a brick outside the ballpark, outside City Field in New York. And it says, uh, Bob Letter, a Mets fan since the beginning. Very nice. Slash Skokie, which is where I live now, Skokie, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, But in 1963, I also became a New York Jets fan. The team had uh, basically just been bought out of bankruptcy 
uh, they had been known as the New York Titans. Right. And Sonny Werblin, uh, really uh, a, a media mogul and, and a manager uh, extraordinaire of movie stars and New York, you know, uh, theater stars, um, who had basically been the guiding light in the television industry. I'll be very brief because I don't want this to go too long. But basically, he was selling his stars, creating shows, and going to CBS, NBC, and ABC simultaneously every year for like a decade and selling them things like The Big Valley uh, and, uh, you know, this show and that show and, and putting on competing programs on the networks with his stars in those shows. Anyway, he, he became very rich. He and a syndicate of, of four or five other guys bought the Jets. Mm -hmm. And here I was, a, uh, an 11, 12-year-old. The Mets season was over because football's in the fall, of course. And so I started to watch the New York Jets. And I watched them from their very start grow from the laughing stock of the American Football League, which in and of itself, they called it the Mickey Mouse League. <laughs> um, and from 1963 to 1969 in January, I watched this team become a Super Bowl champion. By 1969, I was 16, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And these guys had captured my imagination. It was the first championship I'd ever seen of a New York team. Um, and um, I decided about five years ago that I was going to do something I'd wanted to do for a long time, and that is actually write a book. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm a journalist, right. but I'd never written about sports, even though I've had a long interest in it. And so I decided in 19, uh, excuse me, in 2016, mm -hmm. that I was going to write a book about the Super Bowl Jets team. But because so many books have been written about Joe Namath, who was the star, the superstar of that team. Right. But I would write a book based upon everybody else on that team. In other words, the 44 guys who played that year who right. didn't have Namath on their, <laughs> of their uniform. Um, and so I decided to do a book. And I actually had a book published uh, by HarperCollins, the second largest uh, publication uh, house in the world. Cool. Non-Broadway Joe the Super Bowl team that changed football. Very and the cool. book came out in 2018 on the 50th anniversary of the team winning the Super Bowl. And didn't become a bestseller. It should be. All of you guys out there should be buying the book. <laughs> um, but I'm very proud of it because um, I got 36 of uh, the players and coaches. There was one coach who survived. And, and 36 five players who had actually survived the 2018, 50 years later. And they wow. filled my ear and the book with stories that are funny and touching and sad and, you know, all the, uh, the adjectives that you want. I'm very proud of the book. Uh, and uh, Jet fans who have read it and football fans who have read it, who care about the history of the National Football League, mm -hmm. get a big kick out of it and have given it very, very, very good reviews on Amazon. You can check it out for yourself. And I hope many of you will. That is a really interesting angle. Uh, sounds like a really cool book. And I only hope that I'll live long enough for someone to do something similar for 
or uh, my Vikings. So, well, you know, the great <laughs> thing about the book, and since you're a Viking fan, I'll do this here. I could, in looking at what we uncovered in this book, mm-hmm. I could tell you stuff about how the Vikings were impacted during that time period. Sure. Uh, Joe Cap was the quarterback right. of, of the Vikings, and. Uh, I can tell you that the Jets looked at the prospect of playing the Vikings in the Super Bowl, and they were licking their chops. Yeah. Because they didn't think Joe Cap could do anything right. against their defense. The Jets had the number one rated defense in the AFL the year they won the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the defense of the Purple People Eaters really was magnificent. Right. But it certainly wasn't better than what Baltimore had. Baltimore had the best defense in the NFL of the year. That, that the Jets won the Super Bowl and beat Baltimore in it. So I, I, in meeting people over the years, I've said, oh, I can tell you something about your team, you know, that I found out. You know, the, sure. the biggest thing I found out that will surprise a lot of fans, especially since I live in Chicago, the Jets came this close to signing Dick Butkus. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and he would have been a rookie at middle linebacker the year that the Jets introduced Namath as a rookie quarterback. They came out the same year, and the Jets had an in with Butkus because the Jets' backup quarterback had also graduated from Illinois, and he was best buddies with Butkus. And Butkus was taken to the Jets' headquarters in midtown Manhattan and offered a contract where he was told to fill in the number. Wow. The Jets would pay him whatever he wanted. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and he told them that he was just – blown away by that, but he had already given his verbal okay to George Hallis and the Bears, and he wasn't the kind of guy that was going to walk away. And the kicker to the story is he had two really good years in Chicago, and then he had a series of injuries. He's still probably the best linebacker I've ever seen play, but he told his friend from the quarterback from Illinois years later, damn, why didn't I sign with the Jets? (laughs) Scandalous. You've got scandals here, Bob. <laughs> you know, again, if you're a football fan, that you know, this book will interest you. It's not just about, you know, the green and white of the Jets. No, that's, that's, that's really cool. So I'm curious to know, since you spent a lifetime in journalism, uh, I assume that that helped you when you approached the book. Any lessons you can draw or experiences sort of contrasting those two? Yeah, I, I, well, first of all, I, you know, I'm a little bit uh, of, a, of a Bob Woodward type. I taped every single interview that I did. Right. And I transcribed every single interview that I did. And mm-hmm. so I've got, you know, all these uh, digital uh, interviews. Yeah, I learned a lot about it. I learned about the art of really doing an interview and, and listening even more carefully and, and following up. Right. Uh, and, and basically... Um, figuring out from a, from a research perspective, I had a lot of, you know, qualitative data and I needed to develop some quantitative data. Right. Um, and so I started really digging into a lot of books that had a lot of data um, about statistics and this and that and analyses of, of you know, some of these players. And sure. in fact, one of the most interesting things that's in the book is that the Jets coach, Weave Eubank, um, was a stickler for information about his own players. Mm-hmm. And so he kept copious notes, um, which he read out to his assistant who typed them out. Mm-hmm. And I was able 
Um, actually, I was going to say, I found somebody. The guy who bought the Webu Bank estate uh, in 2000, 2001, 2002, had all this information that Webu Bank had kept to himself about all these players, all these updated reviews year by year, um, which were basically placed at my feet. And the collector said to me, if any of this stuff is helpful to you in the book, feel free, use whatever you want. So there was a lot of research that went, in, that went into this book. The, the premise of it that I presented to the players as I spoke to them was, I'm not a sports writer and I'm not looking for page six material. I'm a fan from back then and I remember each of you as a player and we'll start our conversation by what I most remember about you. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be um, the golden key that opened up with several of the players um, right. willingness to talk. Because a number of them said to me, I've told my story a thousand times. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. And I said to a couple of them in particular, let me tell you what I remember about you as a 17-year-old fan. And after I told them what I remember, they said to me, okay, you convinced me. When do you want to talk? Oh, that's great. That's really cool. Great, great story. Great story. Um, so let me switch gears again, because you, uh, you've been in and around the research industry for a long time, and you've seen a lot of trends come and go. Curious to know, uh, as you sit in your seat now, uh, what you see sort of on the horizon, what's, what's important, uh, and you know, what, what do you see as the future of Insights? Well, you know, um, if it wasn't for what we've all experienced this year, you'd get probably a lot of the same answers that I would have given you a year ago, two years ago, even three years ago. Sure. Um, looking at the situation right now, and then we can peer into the future a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of companies struggling. Mm -hmm. I heard, actually, I saw a report that came out last week and I forget the name of the company, but there's a West Coast-based um, uh, information company. And they put out a report that said that research company sales revenues this year are up 2%. And my head shook like one of those cartoon characters. <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> because that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Now, maybe yeah. it's true. I don't know. I actually should look more carefully uh, at... Uh, at the actual financial reports from public companies that have put out numbers this year. I haven't looked at it closely enough, but I mean, I'm just looking here. I have something here. It says Comscore. Uh, their second quarter saw narrowed losses. Now, that doesn't sound like they're doing, you know, much better. Um, and I've got a couple other like that. Um, so I I've heard names of, of companies that I will not repeat here because I don't know that it's true that are really kind of sucking wind. Yeah. Uh, and that's not surprising. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody has taken kind of a hit. I've also heard of a handful of companies, like I talked to one this week, that will be on RBDR um, week after next, who've actually done better this year. Right. And it's just the strangest of circumstances. Sure. Um, there's a real issue now, and I heard it from one of the people um, that I have interviewed uh, in the last six months, since March 15th. For those of you who have not watched Research Business Daily Report, and it's free, at least now, uh, and it's delivered in your email every day, 
Um, one client-side researcher told me about, oh, three months ago, that the, the coronavirus situation has actually helped him in one important way. See, he's in charge of both research and data analytics in his company. Mm -hmm. Very unusual situation. Usually right. they're separated. Sometimes they're not even in the same building. <laughs> and what has happened with him is that uh, his management has come to him and said, hey, if we put those two information resources together, would we find out more than we know now? Aha! Yeah. What an idea. It's not going on very much in our industry. In fact, one of the biggest problems we have in our industry is that the research people and the data analysts and collection people uh, are not collaborating. They're not being forced to collaborate. Uh, and, and there's all kinds of reasons why they should be, which I'm not gonna really get into. That's a big issue. I, I look at research, unfortunately, and I don't see the kind of headstrong, uh, um, proactive um, people that I saw 15 years ago. You know, when I first came in the industry in 1995, the big issue was, geez, how do I get a seat at the table? Right. <laughs> well, by, that 2000, for years. by 2000, 2001, we weren't hearing that very much anymore. Right. They had figured it out and they had a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Today, guess what? A lot of them don't have a seat at the table anymore. Right. Because they're not progressive enough. They're not action oriented enough. They're not willing in many cases to uh, present their conclusions, their recommendations, you know, when they have a research project. So I don't know what's going to happen to research, but I do remember about 10 years ago, and I mentioned this on our video a couple weeks ago, Kim Dedeker, who was the head of research at P&G in the late, well, in the late 2000s, said out loud one day that if research didn't get its act together, particularly sample and, you know, qualitative and quant particularly quantitative research, that um, social media research was going to take its place. Right. Because it was going to be so easy to do. Well, it's still not quite there, but it's getting closer. And if research doesn't do something and really reassert itself, uh, I don't know what kind of a future the industry may have, at least, at least the, the market research part of the industry. I look at the industry under a very broad umbrella. Right. And I call it research. And I include data analytics and, um, and uh, AI and research and all sure. the other new things that we have welcomed to the industry in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, all is one. I call it all research. Right. Cool. Really interesting perspective. Uh, a lot of that rings true. You, when I was, you, I'm just yeah. curious. Do you agree? Do you disagree? What's your reaction? No, that? a lot of that rings, rings true. I think um, so much is blurred in terms of the lines of, you know, what, what do we consider research? What is under our tent? Um, and, you know, if some of these competing sources, if you will, fall underneath the research tent, then it's, then it's, you know, all part of the same pie. But if it is peeled off to something totally separate, analytics is divorced from market research, then it's a different, then it's a different deal. Uh, but clearly, uh, I think in terms of source data, 
there's so much more to work with uh, and there are opportunities to be more agnostic about how to answer questions. So cool stuff. Uh, so you have been on the other side of the table uh, for so long as a publisher producing content. Uh, what kinds of sources or specific sources, podcasts or whatever, uh, are things that you look to for inspiration and, and spend your time with? I look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> no, I also, although I will tell you several times a week, I may look in the mirror and say, how good a job, you know, am I doing? And I always get a pretty honest answer. <laughs> um, the sources, um, I, I do a couple of things. First of all, I, I do get stuff through email like everybody does, but I, I have a little bit different angle on looking at it uh, because as I mentioned before, um, since March, we have been doing a daily research video report and I've called it market research in the COVID-19 era. And we've had exclusively people expressing uh, their perspectives on how they think research has been in fact affected, infected in some cases by the right. virus. What has it done to them, to their businesses, to other companies, to the industry at large that they may be aware of? We've got an amazing array of answers. Somebody told me the other day, it'd be impossible for anybody in the industry to put together a better, uh, really big picture and even intricate um, analysis of what's what's been going on. Mm -hmm. um, I don't listen to most podcasts. Mm -hmm. If it takes more than five minutes or so, I don't have the time. Right. I don't understand, honestly, people that are doing webinars and podcasts that run 30, 40, 50 minutes. I, mean, <laughs> I think this I, one's going to be 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> well, okay, but you know, if if I didn't work out of my office, and we're all working out of our homes now, okay, yeah. who really has the time? Um, I watched one of yours before, you know, we agreed to get together, because I was sure. curious what you're doing. And I've done the same thing with Jamin Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, I listened to one and then called him up and said, hey, I'll be on as a guest if you'd like. Um, and, and so um, my source is really, I, I look at what I'm getting in the way of press releases. I do a news data collection every single night right. of, of key phrases in the industry. Mm -hmm. So I look and, and see what kind of press releases have come out, what kind of blogs have come out, what is even in newspapers around the world. You know, I make it a check. It's not just U.S., it's global. Um, I obviously talk to a lot of people. And sure. I have to say, I know a lot of people in a lot of important places. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll share stuff with me off the record so that uh, I consider myself somewhat of an expert from like a thousand feet above sure. you. Because I can look down and I can tell you what direction things are going, what the trends are what the blowback is against those trends and such. I'm, I'm really good at that. And a couple of weeks ago, I actually put a survey together for the second time in my career. And I <laughs> gave it to a professional researcher to help me, you know, really put together. And he said, wow, for somebody who doesn't know what you're doing, this was pretty good. <laughs> High praise. Yes. High praise. Excellent. Uh, so you said that you watched one of these podcasts, so you have to know what's coming. 
So I need to know, besides Slayer, because I know you're a big Slayer fan like I am, and Motorhead as well. Is that Ric Flair? Or? <laughs> you're stranded on a desert island, Bob. You've got three records at your disposal for the end of your days. What are they? Wow. You know, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to bring back some recollections. Um, and, and this is an embarrassment, as I think I've told you before, but I'm a big Al Jolson fan. Yep. Uh, when I grew up in New York, um, they used to have what they call the million dollar movie. And it was a full length motion picture. It usually was maybe 10, 15 years old. But they would play it every night that the Mets weren't on TV. It was on the same station. And they'd play it on the weekend several times. And I remember the Jolson story coming on. And I had no idea who Al Jolson was. Mm -hmm. But he dubbed all the music in, in, the, in the film. And I was mesmerized. And I saw, and I'm 11, 12 years old, I was walking down the street with nobody looking. And I was like, mammy, oh, my mammy. And all this <laughs> so I, I'm a big Jolson fan. And I probably would have, you know, a, a Jolson record. Uh, or a CD, I guess it would be. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a guy of the 70s. Most of my music taste that I like is 70s. Okay. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was exposed to that I really like, I like the Moody Blues. And I like Days of Future Past. You know, it's a very classic album. Sure. Um, and uh, when I'm alone in the car, uh, meaning my wife is not there, I'll, you know, put the CD in and I'll, sing along with it and my voice is terrible <laughs> um so that might be my second one and then the third one i don't know you know i i like i like the carpenters <laughs> i like john denver sure um um I, you know in the 60s and 70s top 40 included perry como <laughs> and frank sinatra old school and uh, Tony Bennett, mm -hmm. okay, if they put out a single that people really liked, it was in the top 40, and you yeah. heard it over and over again. So I like that stuff, too. I mean, I have a, a couple of, you know, best of Sinatra CD things. Yep, me I too. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I listen to it, and my, luckily my wife doesn't mind it, but I mean, wow, what, you know, it, particularly in his best years, which you know, for me with the 50s and the 60s, although people much older look back to the 30s and the 40s. But I mean, his, his range and his ability to sing and, and the orchestration, he always had the best orchestration behind him. Absolutely, absolutely. So th those are, you know, th those are where my musical tastes are. Cool, that, that works for me. Um, this has been a great conversation. I, I have to give you a blast of the past to leave you on this note here. This is the research conference report wow. from 2008. What, now, what, what year is that from? That's from 2008, right? Uh, is, that, is that when you ended your subscription? I think that was. Uh, yeah, it might be. It might be because, see, there's me. Uh, uh, well, that's, no, that's Nick hey, Harrington. Look at, that, look, look at that head of hair. That's Nick Harrington from p &G. Oh, okay. I, I'm on the next page. I get confused easily. There's me. <laughs> but the important thing is uh, we did a joint presentation, Nick Harrington from p and and I, uh, and you gave us straight A's. I don't know if you can hey, see hey, that. Hey. 
freshness, relevance, practicality. So thank you for yeah, that, we Bob. Decide, yeah, we, I think that's one of the great innovations that we had in that publication. Rather than just telling you what you said, you know, we, we'd rate you on several different factors. So uh, you, you may have noticed a lot of the people there, maybe they might not have gotten straight A's, but they got, you know, highly rated. And that is, what, why would I do a summary of a, of a really bad presentation? <laughs> Think all right. Well, I've, I've kept it all these years because it was a great ego stroke. So well, thank you for that. It should be framed. I should see it on the wall <laughs> behind you. You want to see right. my wall? I'll show you all that I got about myself. Oh, I bet there's a bunch. <laughs> all right, Bob. This has been great. I really appreciate it. It's great to uh, turn the tables on you and uh, hear your story about the JETS, 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 Jets uh, and your life and research. So thank you so much. Matt, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. And thank you for forcing me to take my mind off uh, research just for a little bit so I could, you know, find out and, and look at my own musical tastes. All right. Well, rock and roll. Check out some Slayer. I think you'll love well, it. It, 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 is, it is a Jewish <laughs> New Year, so live long and prosper. <laughs> Very good. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. Take good care.